Nehemiah 1, 1 through 4. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped. They'd gone back to Jerusalem. He was in Babylon, who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and the gates are burned with fire. And so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. A uh, little background, Nehemiah is a cupbearer in the service of the king of Babylon. He's a Jew who was reared in Babylon. He has never been to Israel, but being Jewish, he knows the history of his people, the promises made to Abraham, the land that was promised them, and the city where the temple had been set up. Upon the return to Babylon of some of his fellow Jews, because God had graciously taken them back home after 70 years in captivity, and just so you uh, an idea, I have no idea what the distance is, but we're not talking about from here to Lake Jack, I mean from here to Jones Creek or from here to Brazoria, we're talking about from here to Tennessee or here to uh, Maryland or something like that. It was quite a, quite a jaunt. And so anyway, when they come back to Babylon, probably because they had business there or they had friends there, or they had family there, uh, he asked them about Jerusalem, the wall, uh, the temple and the wall and concerning the city and hearing that the walls were broken down and the gates were burned with fire, a great burden, in fact it became a burden of prayer came upon him and ultimately this burden led to a desire and a vision to do something about the situation. As we may all know, eventually Nehemiah with the favor and empowerment of God was able to lead the people of Israel to rebuild the city walls that had sat broken for 140 years and God used them to rebuild those walls in a period of 52 days. Knowing that, God, knowing that God wants us to understand the importance of the wall and the gates, and so we want to put this in context to find out why that is significant. Now, I'm going to be reading a lot of Scripture tonight, uh, but the first thing we're going to look at is uh, one of the things that happened after the Israelites came out of, uh, uh, they, they were went into captivity because of the rebellion and the idolatry. God over and over again, over and over again, tell them don't do that, repent, uh, but they didn't. And ultimately, God allowed them to go their way, and they were taken captive by Babylon. When they were taken captive by Babylon, we're talking about the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, God said that in 70 years, uh, you'll go back to the land. So uh, what happened was after 70 years, they found the prophecies of Jeremiah. Uh, they began to pray. God led them back to the land. When they went back to the land, they, had, uh, they began by rebuilding the altar of God and the temple of God. That, that was, that's a whole other thing in and of itself. It took a while. But that's the first thing we want to look at is the rebuilt temple. In Ezra 1, 1 through 5, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that it might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kings of, uh, kingdoms of the earth uh, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem, and whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits had moved, arose to go and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And by the way, this is about 140 years prior to Nehemiah. 
70 years after the Israelites had gone into captivity in Babylon. So we're looking, uh, uh, you know, just so you'll know what's happening here. But the, some of the Israelites were left to go, were, went back. They didn't all go back. Because a lot of them, even though were Jew, they were Jewish, they didn't uh, identify really anymore as much as being Jewish as much as they did being Babylonian. Just like today, you have Russian Jews who they're Jews, but they, they identify more with being Russian than they do with being Jews because they were born and raised in Russia. Right? Okay, so a lot of them didn't want to go. In fact, a bunch of them didn't want to go. More stayed than went. But some of them did go. And what happened, if you were to read Ezra, if you go down to chapter 6, which is a little farther on from chapter 1, it says, The temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which is in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. So already you have another king. Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. They offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. They assigned the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. So, So what we're seeing happening here is that the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians, the Israelites were allowed to go back and they began to rebuild the temple. Despite the rebuilding of the altar and the temple uh, worship being reinstated, what we'll learn and what we see based upon Nehemiah's understanding of what's going on in Jerusalem and the way he responded to the, to the walls being down, they had the altar, they had the temple, but in some, for some reason in the eyes of God, that was not enough. Something was still missing. You know, sometimes we think, man, if we can just get a bunch of people together and start a church and we can build a building, uh, that's enough. It's not enough. You see, they had the building, they had good worship, but it wasn't enough in the eyes of God. So I'm trying to make it relevant to us, okay? I'm trying to make it relevant. So they still needed something else to be done. The walls needed to be rebuilt and the gates needed to be set. Now the question that came into my mind is, why? Why was it so important? In Ezra 4, 1 through 5, it says, When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, and this is in the middle of building the temple before they finished it, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you. For we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Yeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses uh, uh, said to him, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, when you first read that, you might think to yourself, why didn't they let them help them build? Because they were compromised. When I say compromise, is that they, weren't, they were worshiping God, so they say, but they were also worshiping idols. Their worship of God was not pure, was not true. God is, a, is worthy of our devotion. God wants all of our hearts. How many of you ladies would marry someone that said, I'm going to give you most of my heart? 
right? Or I'll give you all my heart for 350 days. But for the last two weeks of the year, that's it. How many of y'all would marry somebody like that? You wouldn't, right? Or how many of y'all would marry somebody that says, I love you with all my heart, but I love this other person with all my heart as well? You wouldn't do that. But that's what the Israelites were doing with God. And that's what these people were doing as well. The Israelites had learned a lesson in Babylon. They learned that, hey, compromise is not a good thing. These people want to join with us, but their lifestyles are sinful. The way they live are sinful. And we need to understand as a church, we are not, um, we, we love everyone. We want to call out the gold in everyone. We want to do that, but we don't compromise the word of God to allow sin in the house of God. Now, we don't go around, I don't go around and say, hey, is there sin in your life, sin in your life, sin in your life? No, that's not my job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Now, if you're in leadership and we find out, we've got to deal with it. But the bottom line is we want you here. The more you're in the presence of God, the more the Spirit of God will convince you and convict you of what you're doing. He doesn't condemn. He convicts. But in order to convict, you have to have a standard. You have to know what's right. Listen, I, I, I like to... Uh, uh, I, I, uh, I lost a lot of weight, and I want to keep that weight off. And so I'll have some good days. I'll have a lot of good days. Every once in a while, I don't. But for the most part, what I do is I try to measure what I eat. I, I, uh, but I don't always do it exactly. You know, it's, uh, eh, that's about right. That's about a cup. That's about a cup. How Any of y'all do the same, right? I'll just have like half a cup. I ain't half a cup, you know. <laughs> So what happens is, uh, is that my daughter has this scale. She says, if you really want to be accurate, you have to have a scale. And I was like, man, that is so little. That's not enough. How is anybody supposed to survive? Man, that's not 100 calories. I've been eating 200 calories, you know. I've been eating 400. I thought I was eating 200 calories, you know. So sometimes what you do is you just don't want to count. It's like, it's like the scale in your bathroom that has dust on it. Why does it have dust on it? Because you don't want to measure yourself against the standard. So if you get on the scale and you don't like what it says, a lot of times that's why you have broken things in your bathroom. It's the scale. There's something wrong with the scale. And if you have one of those old ones, you start messing with the, the little thing and you say, well, I've got my clothes on, so I have to adjust it. Okay, now, and you know, you're starting out 10 pounds lower. That's about right. We're <laughs> so what these people wanted to do is they wanted to come in, but they were already compromised. The standards were not being kept. So you can say you're, you're, you worship the Lord, but the reality is what you say and what you do is two different things. Right? We have to not just talk righteous, we have to live righteous. You'll know them by their love for one another. What is love? It was a fruit of the Spirit. We have to have the fruits of God manifesting in our lives. It doesn't mean that when you get saved, you're perfect. No, nobody starts with perfection. We strive towards perf perfection, but please don't understand, misunderstand what that word perfection means. Perfection means maturity. Right? It's, it's, a, it's a shameful thing uh, when uh, uh, somebody that's 30, 40 years old acts like a little kid. Unfortunately, that seems to be happening more and more and more in society. 
right? Listen, I've been a pastor for a long time. That's happened a lot in church. Doesn't happen as much anymore, but it's happened a lot in church. People, for some reason, they get saved, but they, leave, they bring their worldliness with them. They bring their, 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 their independence. They bring what they want with them. And, you know, the thing about serving the Lord is that stuff over time, we're supposed to be not self-serving but self-sacrificing. Right? Uh, we were talking about, my wife and I were talking about this the other day. He said, what about people that drink? He said, I really have a hard time with that. He said, well, I, 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 it's not that I don't, I, I don't have a, a problem with that. It's that my wife looks at it as like rebellion against God. I look at it like immaturity. You don't know what it is to sacrifice. You just know I can do it and I want to do it. Nobody can tell me any different. And that's true. You have the freedom to do whatever you want, right? But if you understood when you, when you grow up in the Lord that it's not about you, how many mothers, when you're carrying a baby, if they tell you that you can't have this, you can't do this, because if you do, it'll affect your baby, so you stop smoking. I'm not saying anybody here, but you stop smoking. You stop uh, uh, eating all the, because you have a sugar problem. You stop eating sweets. You do it because you're doing it for the love of a child. Yet in the church, we're not willing to give up our wants for the love of those that God shed his blood for. Immaturity. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not beneficial for you. If we grow up in Christ, it's not that I can, I can, I can. It's, well, I can, but I don't want to. Why? Because it's going to hurt my brothers, it's going to hurt my sisters. and I may be able to do it, but they can't. What if they do, try to do what I do, and instead of being able to tolerate, it's going to affect me at some point down the road, but what if they can't handle it and it kills them dead? I mean, it robs them of their life, robs them of their spirituality. I don't want to be guilty of that. That's basically what Paul says. So I'm not going to do it. Why? Because I love them. See, what happens is when you grow up in the Lord, uh, when you grow up into maturity, I don't know how I got off on this. But the bottom line is you no longer want to do things that will hurt people. You don't want to do things that will lead them astray. You want to become what the Lord wants you to become. Uh, we, we grow up, we strive towards perfection. We grow up in God and we reflect uh, uh, the image and the likeness and the character of God. That's what the Lord wants for us, right? So uh, that's why these people... Uh, they wouldn't let them build with us. That's why in the church we're supposed to have standards. We want you here, we, but we're not going to, and we're going to accept you, but we're not going to accept your sin. We're going to let you know what the truth is. We're going to let you know what the Word of God says. And so what people will do is they'll either try to stop the preacher from preaching on that. That's not happened here. But it does happen, Right? Or they'll try to get the church to compromise what they're preaching. Or they'll try to, there is a movement today, we see it in society, that if someone doesn't like what you say, they try to shut you down. Right? I wouldn't be surprised at some point if people tried to do that. What do we do as a church when people try to shut us down? What do they try to do? What do they do with uh, Paul and Silas? When they, I mean, uh, Paul and John, they said they prayed for boldness. We're not going to stop doing it. Now, that we should examine what we do. Are we doing it in love? But we shouldn't stop preaching the truth. 
right? Listen, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, I'll tell you till the day uh, the Lord takes me home that abortion is wrong. I don't care how it makes anybody feel. I don't care. We're not saying, I, don't, I haven't processed if there's exceptions. I haven't processed all of that. I'm just saying, huh? Yeah, taking innocent life is wrong. It's wrong. And people, and I will say it, and I will continue to say it, whether it's politically correct or not, the biblical stance is you are to protect life. What we're doing is we're killing life to protect our selfish lifestyle. I don't want to experience the consequences of my behavior, so I'm going to take it out on this child, but I'm not going to call it a child so it doesn't affect my conscience. And then I'm going to try to get everybody to agree with me. And if they don't agree with me, I'm going to make them agree with me. But it ain't going to happen. Because the Word of God is a standard. And we're not going to compromise the standard. But you don't know how that makes me feel. Listen, if you've had an abortion in the past, please please don't misunderstand me. We love you. There's forgiveness. There's all that with God. There's mercy. We'll restore you. God will cause your, your, your sins to be cast from the east and the west. All of that. We do that. God is so merciful. He's so gracious. We all have stuff that we regret that we've done in our life. But it doesn't change the standards. When I know the standards, I recognize that I miss the mark. When I recognize I missed the mark, then I have the opportunity to fall on God's grace. But I don't need grace if I didn't miss anything. For all have sin. That word sin means miss the mark. Well, I didn't miss the mark as bad as they did. Listen, if you're jumping off a cliff, it doesn't matter how far you jump. You're still going to fall in the abyss. Okay, so let's get back. So anyway, um, you had the, um, the rebuilt temple. The second thing that happened is you had a repentant people. So they rebuilt the temple. And then Ezra comes, and he shows up. I don't remember if it was 40, 60 years later. And Ezra came up from Babylon in Ezra 7, 6 through 8. And the Bible says he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. So what you're going to find is that you had the temple, you had the worship, but what you didn't have, and many times this was absent throughout Israel's history, is they had good worship, but they had no word. The word of God was absent. Right, And then there, were, there are other times throughout history that you have word, but the worship, the Spirit of God is absent. You have to have both. You have to have the Word of God, and you have to have the presence of God. You have to have the Spirit of God moving. But in this particular time, they had the worship going. They had the sacrifices going. But apparently, they had missed it because they didn't have the Word of God. But Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law, skilled in the Word of God. And the king granted Ezra all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nethanim, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. And then we'll jump down to verse to chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. While Ezra was praying, while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. So what had happened was when Ezra arrived, he began to preach the word of God. When he began to preach the word of God, people began to realize we're living in sin. 
what they began to do is they began to intermarry with the ites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the people that wanted to build with them, and they said no. When they first got there 60 years later, they said yes. Compromise had entered into the, into the assembly, and Ezra began to preach the Word of God. When he began to preach the Word of God, he began to realize, and they began to realize, and Ezra was distraught, and the people of God were distraught. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, I'll tell you, I really like that Shechaniah. No, <laughs> I have no idea who he is. The son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, we have trespassed. That means we've sinned against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them. Now, these are their, these are their families, the children that were born to them. But when they realize how this compromised God, didn't Jesus say, if someone doesn't hate father, brother, sister, mother more than me, they're not worthy of me? That word hate means if they don't love me more than them. But anyway, that's what's happening here. Yet now there's hope in, spite of, in Israel in spite of this. Now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise for the matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. So what was happening here? There was a repentance taking place. So you had a rebuilding of the temple and now you had a people that were repenting for their sins and getting right with God. How many of you, this is awesome. You want a church to be built in the city. You want a church, and the church is not a building. The church is a people. So you want them to gather. You want worship to take place. You want the word. And, and what you want is you want the, the conviction of God to come down where the people of God are, are, are feel convicted of their sins, and they confess, and they come to the Lord. They want to get right with God. This is awesome. So I'm trying to put it in a context we can understand, Right? So despite the rebuilding of the altar, the restarting of the temple worship, and despite Ezra's scriptural reforms and the repentance of the people, what we can surmise when we start, I'll go back to Nehemiah, which comes later when Nehemiah got a burden to rebuild the walls, that in the eyes of God, you had the temple, you had the altar, you had the worship, you had repentance, you had the scriptural reforms, but in the eyes of God, that was not enough. What do you mean? That's like the best church ever. Something was still missing. What was it? We'll come back next week. That be all right? We'll come back next week and we'll finish this up. You think that's a good idea? All right, you want to take a vote? No, you don't want me to come back next week? Oh, no vote? You, yeah, the board says I've got to finish it this week? Oh, so i got to finish it. Okay, Mike won't be here next week. <laughs> All right, all right. So y'all asked me to do it, all right. So that brings us to our third point. Marty had accidentally copied the scriptures twice. So, so uh, that brings us to our third point, the restored city. So Nehemiah 2, 4 through 5, the king said to me, what do you want? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Nehemiah 2, 17 through 19, I said to the people, you see the distress that we're in. He'd already gotten to Jerusalem. 
He had already surveyed. He's talking to the leaders, talking to the people. You see the distress that we're in, how Jerusalem lies waste. Its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which has been good upon me, and also the king's words that have been spoken to me. And so they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to do this, to do this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? And then if we run to uh, Nehemiah chapter 6, four chapters later, verse 15 through 16, the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And it happened when all of our enemies heard of it and all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes for they perceived that this work was done by our God. So anyway, I was trying to make sense of this. Why is the wall so important? Why was it that having the temple and the worship going was not good enough? It's not that it wasn't good enough. It just, it wasn't the, the job wasn't finished yet. Why was it that having repentance and, and getting people right, it still wasn't the job wasn't finished yet? Why did God think it's not finished yet? There still needs to be this. I realized that in order to understand, I was trying to wrap my mind around it, trying to think about it, but I began to realize in order to understand why Nehemiah's task to rebuild the city walls and set the gates was so important, I had to see a bigger context. We tend to think it was just about the city. But God didn't give the Israelites the city of Jerusalem. He gave them the land of Israel. Listen to me. This is important. It's not just about the city. It's not just about our church. We can get myopic in how we look at things. It's not just about the, the city of Jerusalem. With Zerubbabel, while they were worshiping in Jerusalem, after the temple was rebuilt, remember going back to, to Zerubbabel, the land was still possessed by their enemies and under the enemy's influence. The enemy was still exercising influence in the land that was supposed to belong to them. We got the temple and we got the worship, but who's ruling the land? Who's ruling the land? I'm waiting for a response. Oh, we could start over again because apparently y'all haven't been listening. Who's ruling the land? The enemy. When Ezra arrived, when the Israelites were repenting and cleansing themselves as a people, who was still exercising authority in the influence of the land that God had given the people? It wasn't the people. It was the enemy. But we got our little temple I'm not being belittling. We got our temple. We got our, uh, our worship. We got the word of God. We got people repenting, but we're confined to this little area while the enemy is in possession of that which God has given us. That way of thinking and living to, me, to Nehemiah and to God who moved Nehemiah was not good enough. Jerusalem, the walls and the gates represented much more than just a safe city. It represented the place from where the people of God were to exercise influence and authority. It was the place where they were supposed to rule and reign over the territory that God had given them. When we're talking about rule and reigning in the kingdom of God, don't misunderstand. We are still called to rule and reign, but we don't rule and reign over people. We are supposed to take authority and exercise dominion over the enemy of people. We wrestle not against flesh and 
blood, but against powers, principalities, rulers, spiritual wickedness in high places. God has given you authority over to trample upon serpents and scorpions and upon all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means harm you. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Jerusalem represented the place where the Israelites were supposed to exercise the rule of God's kingdom over the territory that God had given them. So to rebuild the walls and the gates was to reestablish that rule. To do so today as a people, we must grow up and we must mature in Christ. Again, we're not being belittling. We're just saying as the church, we've got to grow up. It's not just about us. Anytime something bad happens, let's hide in the church and pray for God to get us out of here. That's been the mentality, right? God's not just concerned about you. He is concerned about us. But remember, I said revival's for the church and the church is for the world. The church is hiding out in the building, but God has called the church to be a light in the world. Arise, shine, for the light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Why is he doing that in our life? Why is he sending us, in the, in, sending us out in the midst of darkness? Because it's Christians in whom, who carry the name of God, in whom God resides, who carry the authority of God. It's when Christians engage with culture, when Christians move out, that's when the enemy begins to, 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 to ebb, begins to uh, rescind, begins to, to move out of the territory that belongs to us. God expects us to bring the influence of the kingdom into every area where this culture and this city and this nation are. Well, you don't realize how bad things are. The reason things are so bad is because Christians have hidden out and have become uh, apathetic and slothful and, and, and basically no longer are doing the work of God. But we got the altar and we got the temple, and we got the preaching, and we got the building. But who's ruling and reigning outside of here? Now listen, I'm just trying to relay what I feel like the book of Nehemiah is trying to relay to us. Now, is it good to have good worship? Yes, we want that. Do we want the presence of God to move? Yes, we absolutely want that. Do we want uh, uh, truth, uh, to preach the truth? Yes, absolutely. Do we want to see people repent? Absolutely, we want all of that. But not to be ineffective in the world. Jesus left his world to come into this world, which was his anyway, that the people in this world might be affected by his. And in my mind, he was pretty effective. And then he says, while he's praying to the Father, he's about to go back. He says, as you have sent me, I am sending you, them. That's us. To do what? To do the same thing that he did. To proclaim the good news uh, that the kingdom of God is at hand, the good news of Jesus Christ. Why do we do that? Because Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God for the salvation of all those who would believe. It is the gospel that will change lives. And when you change lives, you change families. And when you change families, you change cities. And when you change cities, you change uh, uh, states. And when you change states, you change the nation.
Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the saints to do the work of the ministry, for the saints to build up the body of Christ. That way we may all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So first of all, we need to become all that God's called us to be. All. Romans 8.14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. That word sons is mature sons of God. We become children of God when we get saved. But God wants us to grow up into mature sons of God. What does a mature son of God look like? It looks like someone that's led by the Spirit. Well, God is leading me by the Spirit to hide in the church. The Bible says that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the enemy. The Bible says that Jesus was led by the Spirit to go to the cross so that giving his life for those that that were living in sin, that were sinful, that were lost, that they might have an opportunity to be found and to be saved because of the work that he did. Self-serving, self-sacrificing. What does a mature son look like? One that is self-sacrificing. One is willing to give his life for others. Now listen, I'm willing to give my life for my children, my wife, my children. How many of y'all are willing to give your life for them? Yes, absolutely. We have to have that same love for others. I was thinking about this today. I, I, I like to go preach different places. Just like to do that. Hadn't been able to do that very much, but I like to do that. But I began to wonder how much of that was for me and not for them. Now God used it. People got saved. People got... but. You know, I began to realize is that, is that what I do has the ability to change lives. People are lost without hope, without God. And I have the ability as a preacher, but I'm just using myself, but we all have that. I have the ability as a preacher, as a witness, to change their life. Why do we go after signs, wonders, miracles, and healings? Why do we go after that? Because we want to see all these things happen in our midst. There's truth to that, I do. But for every sign and wonder and healing, there's a changed life. For every sign, wonder, and healing, there is a changed family. There is a testimony to the goodness and the glory of God. God is magnified. His light beginning to shine outside of just this little huddle that we have. We are to become strong in the Lord to deal with the enemy of our souls. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the walls of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of this darkness and this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. He's talking to the whole church. Remember, the whole church is supposed to grow up into Christ. That's to become a mature man. It's not individuals. This is not an individual thing. Put on my helmet. Put on my thing. Yes, we do that individually, but he's talking to the whole body, right? 
Therefore, the whole body, all of us, take up the whole armor of God that you, plural, may be able to withstand in the evil day. Not just like, oh, I'm just holding on. It's so bad. No, may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand. James 4 and 7, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Jesus revealed his will for his church in the prayer he taught the people. Your kingdom come, your will be done in heaven, on earth, as it is in heaven. Isaiah 61 through 3, arise, shine, for your light, somebody has a tongue or is about to get one or you have a prophetic word. Arise, shine, for your light is come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, deep darkness the people, but the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles, the lost, will come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. God's desire is that we, like Jesus who came before us, allow ourselves to be instruments of God to bring the kingdom of God to bear in this world. John 17, 14 through 18. I already alluded to this, but here's the scripture. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. What do we keep praying? Take this out of the world. But Jesus himself says, I don't pray that. Just as I am not of the world, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I'm doing the opposite. I am sending them into the world. Like Jesus, we are to be saved, sanctified. Jesus didn't need to be saved, I'm just saying. We are to be saved, sanctified, spirit and power, to be sent forth, to bring the kingdom of God to bear in the world for his glory. Why was it important to build the wall? Because it was from the city that they were going to exercise influence over the land, subdue the enemy, and let the kingdom of God advance and become all that God wanted it to be.